I didn't have a nuts. Damien got his tongue pierced. Him and I think one of his friends went and got something pierced. But he got his tongue pierced. And Damien, I wouldn't say he had a lisp, mm-hmm. but he had something. Yeah. His one lip was, had this block part underneath. <laughs> and just, I hear him in his voice and to hear him say, Dana. We'd say Dana, and I always made him say, Aunt Dana, Aunt Dana. I always push that, Aunt Dana, Aunt Dana, Aunt Dana. And um, so he got his tongue pierced. And his tongue was so swollen that couldn't talk. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna. And I, even when the swelling went down, he didn't, he couldn't talk. He just couldn't do it. I don't know if it wasn't back far enough or what, but it just didn't work. And when he was trying to talk, he could, you know. So it, one night, apparently, in the middle of the night, he swallowed it. And I said something. Oh, you took it out. He's like, no, no, I swallowed it. He says, but. He didn't get paid for another week, week and a half, and he was going to go buy a new tongue, a tongue ring. I knew it would close up in that time. Didn't say shit. <laughs> did not say shit. He did not need to have this tongue. I can see I just kept telling him, just dig through. Just find that one and boil it up. Oh, you're disgusting. You'll hear the clink. Yeah, you'll hear the clink. Just listen. Dig through your little poo-poo and, you know, find it. Find it. Get one into it. So I never said nothing. And I ain't never put it back in again. never did. Was he pissed off? I don't remember. But. I can see him making people laugh. He likes to probably make people laugh, I guess. Yeah. He liked to piss people off, too. He likes to get it going. He likes a little bit of controversy. Yep. He likes a little bit of both. But I'll think of some more things. And yeah. if I can find up that video, if I can find a way to play it. So yeah, I'd, I'd like you to see it. I'd love to see it. I saw so. one and I'm going to stop it. From Your Daily Local and Two Moms Media and Warren PA, this is Smoke, The Disappearance of Damien Sharp. We're your hosts, Brian Hagberg and Stacy Gross. Damien Sharp graduated from Warren Area High School in 1998. There, his reputation was multifaceted. He was a goth kid, but also a wrestler. When he graduated, he went to the Army, the 10th Mountain Division, and served in Bosnia before returning home. Once he got home, people in the town where he lived, the city of Warren, Pennsylvania, with a population of around 9,000, knew him as the guy who wore all black and had some kind of affinity for a rubber chicken. That rubber chicken has run like a thread through the past year of my life, which is constructed mostly of scraps of stories about Damien from more people than I can name off the top of my head. Almost all of them had a rubber chicken story. He'd hang it off his backpack. The signature black backpack featured in his missing poster. He'd wrap it around his shoulders like a mink stole. He'd have it on him a lot of the time, people say, because it got a reaction. And Damien was all about a reaction. He'd even walk that rubber chicken down the road on a wire leash, like a dog, his aunt Dana Kibbe told me a few weeks ago. When I sat down to record her, it was almost a formality. We met at a local coffee shop, and she just started talking about Damien as if we'd met through him or something. I mean, we kind of did. Until we met last June, I could not have pointed Dana out on the street. I knew her name. Even before the podcast, I'd read what was easy to find on and off through the years. The names alone were what stuck with me, mostly because they felt fraudulent, like they weren't really connected to anyone. 
I spent probably an entire weekend this winter just staring at the pages of newspaper articles laid out on my table in patchwork, finding myself more drawn to the pictures than the words. Janine, Damien's mom, holding a portrait of Damien as a soldier. Janine telling a crowd about Damien after she became a caseworker for the CUE. The family meeting with other families of other missing people in the region. Divers, searchers, Damien's driver's license photo. His hair was black in that photo. The naturally blonde, naturally pale, five foot seven inch wrestler and soldier and brother and son and nephew can't be captured in a million driver's license photos or 10 million feature stories for a local newspaper. Damien was not a person you could categorize easily. Damien lived with his Aunt Dana in seventh grade. Already raising her own son, Thomas, she said it was awkward stepping into the role of helping Damien with his homework and trying to keep him moving forward on the fly. But, Dana said, over that time, Damien started to grow into the wrestler he'd become. It was hard for me at that age to be two things at one time. It was hard for me to even acknowledge that two things could be true at one time. I could either be a hippie or a smart kid. I could either be a good kid or a bad kid. Damien fascinated me because he seemed able to be two completely opposite things at one time. Here's Dana to talk about Damien as a wrestler and how he became one as she saw it. But first, she will tell you her rubber chicken story. And we would take it over town on a leash, on one of those leashes with like the wire in it, you know, so you would pretend like you were walking a fake dog and with the chicken on it. And people just looked at him like he was crazy. And he, to him, that was funny to do that to people, to make people look at him that way, you to know, get to get a response, just to get it, you know, always, you know, just, he, he loved that. And um, I think it was a lot like the nails, painting his nails black. Now he did that in school when he was wrestling and he was doing very well. I mean, to come from where he did to get into this, you know, being an athlete, you know, and a letterman jacket type of thing, you know, for Damien to go to that. It was, you know, and he had his black nails and he told me that when he was in a stance and ready, he made sure his palms were up. You know, he made sure, not his palms were up, that his, his, the top of his hands were up so they could see his nails. He said, and I'd watch their eyes look down at my nails and look back up, look down at my nail. It was distracting them. So, you know, when the whistle blew or whatever, I could catch them. He said, you know, I'd move my hands, anything to make them notice them. And they would. Yes. And he was psyching them out, you know, like getting them ready for that, you know? So that was, uh, he was good at reading people, wasn't he? Um, the ones he cared to, the ones he cared to, I think he would go out of his way sometime to piss me off. Like he thought that was funny. You know, he is weird as that sounds. He, he would think that was funny to do, you know, goofy little things to piss me. And then other times he didn't want to, you know what I mean? Um, when he lived with me, he was in seventh grade. And uh, I was, I went to a school. I went to Beatty every day. And there was an understanding that they were to bring, have his stuff ready. They can't bitch that he wasn't getting stuff done and handing it in if they didn't get it to me and I knew what had to be done. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so we would work with that. And then they would come back with paperwork that said, well, he didn't show how he got the answer. We didn't have internet then, you know what I mean? If you get the answer, there's nobody in my house smart enough to come up with this shit, you know? But, you know, so trying to get him, okay, now we're gonna doing the same thing, but we're gonna write it out on how you did it. And uh, it's really hard to deal with, um, I can't say that Damien was ADD, but I know that my younger children were, and now I'm going to Damien's school, dealing with a school with ADD, because I'd get there and the teachers didn't hand in the work that he had to do, yeah. or nothing was in the office some days. And then other days there was two or three things, And but the teachers wanted him to do it. So I'm trying to, you know, step up in the role of, you know, a parent when I was a parent, but only to, to a small child, you know, to step into, you know, his seventh grade and the school just wasn't doing it, you know? So for him to get to where he was in high school to the point that he was at, actually doing athletic stuff but he felt good about it and he was good at what he did you know yeah and it was kind of like um i don't know jujitsu or whatever it was that he got into as an adult damien always had a tendency toward a fight dana said that likely came from the way he grew up but it showed itself in the way he interacted with his peers i don't know he just wanted to be accepted you know, he wanted to be loved. And um, his dad was different. He was all about the boys. He was all about the boys. Uh, but boys don't cry. You be a man, stand up, you take it. You know, he was very, he was hard on them. You know, he loved them, very proud of them. But he, um, he, he was hard on them. Like a man's man. Man's man, and you stand up, and you don't take any shit, you just, you know, that kind of thing. So Damien, any sensitivity that Damien would have had would have been kind of weeded out a little bit, you think? I don't know how he grew up to be so sensitive, because he was very sensitive. Uh, and you can tell that by the female friends that he had, you know. Um, the girls in school, I worked with uh, a woman by the name of... And she said, and they're redheads, which being a redhead and younger, easy target to pick on. And she said, you know, when she was younger, you know, a little, you know, a little full kid, you know, um, and then the kids would pick on her, you know, and she says she remembers Damien stepping right up and sticking up for her. And she says, just thinking, she says, I think back, you know, at that age, for somebody to stand up to other kids, you know, even peers, even friends, and say that how uncool that was. And that's pretty unheard of, you know? That's a pretty strong personality. Yeah, and that's peer pressure that we all fall to and you just mm -hmm. kind of stand. And I can't even say that I haven't done that. You know, there's a few times I should have stood up, but you don't, you know? But Damien did. And I've heard that more than once from several people. Same. You know, mostly girls. Yeah. You know, just that I believe he had a soft very soft inner side. He had to, to have the female friends that he had, that had respect for him the way that they did. And I think it's because he showed them respect. Today, you technically can't find a county in Pennsylvania without a mental health facility. They exist in the most rural of places, but even in relatively populated areas, it's difficult to find a mental health facility that both has a wait time for an intake appointment less than six weeks long and also takes Medicaid. 
which 22% of Warren County residents are eligible for as of 2019. That's up from 16.2% in 2002, according to the Center for Rural Pennsylvania's statistics. Since the 1966 MH&MR Act, each of Pennsylvania's 67 counties are required to provide mental health and developmental services to the 12.81 million total of the Commonwealth's residents as of 2018. And theoretically, it works. In actuality, though, most rural counties like Warren experience exceptional difficulty in recruiting and retaining the prescribing psychiatrists, licensed therapists, and other professionals required to staff the Commonwealth's rising mental health needs. Some 2017 research for the USC Schaefer Leonard D. Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics backs that up. If you're interested in how mental health, social programming, crime, recidivism, and issues like generational poverty intersect, you should read that presentation. There's a link in the show notes, and it's from 2017, but it's recent enough that you can extrapolate out with further research into trends in your particular area. Those intersections between crime, social, and family issues were at the heart of Damien's story. Janine Shanahan had Damien, her first child, when she was 15 years old. She and Damien's dad, Skip, moved into a trailer and started raising Damien. The funny thing is, is uh, just got a camper, just took it up to Red Oak. And I remember um, when I was a kid going with a friend of my mom's, they had a camp up there and going up there with them we were never in a financial place to do that kind of thing. You know, we didn't have those. My mother was a single mother. And um, and being, I was at Red Oak Campground when I found out Damien was born. Um, my mom's friend went to work, excuse me, went to work and came uh, back up and told me that yeah. he was born. Were you so excited? Just, you know, yeah, well, I don't know. Well, actually, to tell you the truth, I don't know how excited I was. Like, I was 13, I guess. I really didn't know anything about kids. Really really like, okay. I mean, whatever. Now Janine gets all the attention. Blah, 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 blah. Right. You know? Right. And that was her first? Mm-hmm. She was young. Was she excited to have him, or was, she, was it kind of scary? I don't I don't know. I think, what was she? Janine's two years older than me, so Janine yeah. was 15. 15. She was 15, and I think it was... Um, Stick it to my mom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, moved in with Skip, you know, I'm having this baby. And Skip's, you know, mother Rose was all yay type thing. But I was only 13, so it was so different, you know. We, um, there was us three girls at home, and we're all a year apart, Janine, Bobby, and I. And we just wanted to have fun, you know. And I just wanted, and now Janine was stopped, you know. Yeah. She was, they had bought a trailer yeah. down in the trailer park and fixing it up. They were doing and, their you know, thing. Yeah, I don't like Oh man, I want to do that shit, you know. So, but she had her last one at nineteen. Yeah, she was done. She had three of them by nineteen. You know? I was terrified at twenty nine. I was twenty nine. Like I don't know. I was eighteen, and I remember thinking, eh, okay, yeah, kids are cool. I'll have one. See how this goes. You know, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> yeah, you know. But it's so funny now. Ultimately, Dana told me Damien spent his entire life searching for love and acceptance, and. It's because he adored the living hell out of his mother, Janine, so much that, she says, she found herself trying to smooth over issues between the two of them for him. Dana loved Damien, she said, and Damien loved his mom. Okay, Um, and I'm not going to take anything away from either one of them, but I am going to say that Damien 
has been searching for love and acceptance from the time he was young. Um, and unfortunately, uh, he has a brother and a sister that knew him well, you know, because they were all so close in age, Jamie and, and Stephen. Um, now he has two younger, he has a younger sister and a brother. And unfortunately, Mandy and Brian were very young, you know, when, yes, like they knew him and they lived with him, you know, but, you know, they, they didn't get to be in their 20s and know their, their brother, you as know, an adult, yeah. as an adult. Yeah. So, um, which I don't think any of us really know him as an adult. He's 22 and he's kind of, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's not they're walking chickens down the road, so. Yeah. I am going to be 40 in two years and I still don't think I'm entirely an adult yet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But um, it is a different experience, though, you know, knowing someone as a kid and then growing up together and then going through adult, you know, adult experiences, adult traumas, like just milestones, having children and stuff. That I wonder now who Damien would have been, you know, and I as sensitive as he is and I and I he had this thing for his mom. He, he just wanted his mom to love him so much that he, he tried even over backwards, he, you know. And sometimes she was busy and had other things on her mind, and um, but he was always searching for that. And now that Janine's in the position that she is, I believe myself wholeheartedly that he would be there for her yeah. like this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think it would really tear him up to see his mom like this. Um, Janine and I, like I said, being sisters, <laughs> didn't get along a lot of the time because we had, you know, different parenting thoughts. Um, but she was a mother so much earlier than I was. I think Damien is six years older than Thomas. Yeah, he'd be 42 and Thomas is just turned 37. So yeah, you know, Damien's going to be turning. Uh, so, um, you know, they didn't really grow up together and we moved away and everything like that. But I think, um, you know, we, we parented differently. Mm -hmm. um, but I also got to have a bit of, I had, I had Damien, I've had Damien, I had Damien. I had Thomas when I was 18, mm -hmm. well, 19, you know, uh, and she was 15. So that did make a big difference. You know, I got a couple more years partying and that she didn't. So I understand, <laughs> you know, that she, she needed to know what life was, but, um, and Damien hated that. Damien hated that we didn't get along. He wanted peace. He wanted a family. He that, loved his mom. Yeah. He wanted me to love his mom. Yeah. He wanted me to see his mom the way he did. He would he defend her. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I would find myself um, fibbing to Damien. You know, if he was upset that his mom was unable to meet with him and very, very mad about it and saying mean things, I would get a hold of my sister Anziette and say, hey, you know, and Anziette would call Janine and say, hey, and then Janine would call him and say, hey, let's do it tomorrow. <gasps> you know, Aunt Dana, my mom called me, you know, and I'm like, wow, that's great. You know, he loved his, he respected his dad, you know, and he loved his mom. Damien's family had issues, but within the context of family issues present in Warren County at the time, they weren't outliers. Families had issues in Warren County in 2002. 
And because it was still a little too spicy to have significant mental health issues 20 years ago, as opposed to today when I can jump on Facebook and let everyone know my exact score on the Beck anxiety inventory if I want to, 27 and three quarters. It's fine. Everything is fine. People tended not to talk about them. We wouldn't want to cause a scene. I wonder how much of Damien's shock value aesthetic was a reaction to that repression of emotion and authenticity. I grew up in a world where what the neighbors think was still sufficient to justify all manner of what today would amount to parenting sins. You did not, under any circumstances, come home and tell your parents you thought you might be transgender and want their help in exploring that, for example, unless you wanted to be homeless. I mean, I can't speak for every parent in Warren County in the 1980s and 90s, but I'm pretty confident here. If your mom or dad was the exception to that rule, please reach out, but honestly, I'd love you to just tell me more about your fascinating life. I don't mean that facetiously. I am serious. I don't know a single kid whose mental health was at the forefront of their parents' conscious awareness growing up. That's a requirement for parents today. I don't think you can really understand the stones it took in 2002 to walk down the street in black nail polish as a man in Warren County unless you lived here, or I do a good enough job describing it that you can recognize a place you do know in it. Dana talks about how Damien was a deep guy. He thought deeply. When he cared about things or people, he cared deeply. I think Damien liked getting reactions, as Dana said about his rubber chicken walking days. But I think, and this is straight speculation on my part, but I just think that what Damien liked about those reactions is the fact that he was watching people being challenged to do the same thing. And that's what made it entertaining. His style was confrontational. Younger kids described his apartment and him in a first impressions situation as kind of scary. Either way, Damien seemed early on to respond to that cultural tendency to repress by acting out in a way that demanded the issue be dealt with instead. Dana's son, Thomas, was six when Damien lived with them in his seventh grade academic year. Thomas is now the chief detective for the Warren County District Attorney's Office, and he's actually who encouraged me to reach out to his mom in the first place after Brian and I made the podcast public on social media last August. I'm in an odd situation, he said back then. As the chief detective, he can investigate Damien's case, but because Damien is his cousin, he said he avoids it as a conflict. But, Thomas said, I'm going to give you my mom's number. She's the one that found Damien was missing. We got to take a quick break, but when we get back, we'll jump straight back to Dana because it was around this point of the conversation that she started talking about how the family found out something was wrong, and we're going to start laying out the timeline of the investigation which started nearly two weeks after Damien's last known day alive. Hang tight. Hey guys, we're producing this podcast for you and making sure you can access it without spending a dime because it's important for everyone to know the fullest possible truth of Damien's story. This content is free because both Your Daily Local and Two Moms Media believe in a press free from government or corporate oversight, but free to consume as well. If you think you're entitled to quality reporting without a subscription cost, you're in luck. Because so do we. Brian and I both support the creators and media outlets we find to have worked the hardest and the most ethically to provide the content we rely on to make important decisions in our lives. Mostly because we know the amount of work that goes into creating it. We don't expect you to know that, but we do hope that content like this, honest, person-centered pieces of substance, 
reporting that takes a faint but worthy voice and elevates it to the platform it deserves is of enough value to you as listeners to consider throwing us a few bucks in exchange. We're still going to give you the content, but your support helps us do more of this and better. We want to do so much more for you guys. Consider helping us. just jumping on board and aren't familiar with the night Damien went missing, or if it's still just super confusing, trust us, we get it. So let's recap that weekend. Friday, May 24th, 2002, Damien had a party at his apartment, 19 Cedar Street in Warren. Damien's friend since childhood, Dave, was there that night. Dave said that a bunch of people were over and he couldn't remember if Damien's brother Stephen was there or not, but he does remember that someone the police eventually questioned in the case last person known to have seen Damien alive until about a month ago, actually, was there. That person actually spoke with us, too, and we'll dive deep into what he remembers of that night, but for now, we're sticking to the broad strokes because this case is rabbit hole after rabbit hole, and it's easy to get lost. For now, know that Damien had some friends over to drink that Friday night. He, Dave, and a half dozen others or so. Dave chose not to go on tape for this podcast, but he did have a vivid memory of Damien from that night. He didn't know at the time it would be, as he said, one of his last clear memories of Damien. Everyone was drunk, Dave said. It was late. Damien was cooking chicken. Always with the chicken. Some of the chicken fell into the sink filled with dirty dishes, and Damien was upset he'd wasted the meat. But long story short, Dave said the chicken got rinsed and eaten anyhow because fuck it. It's a really simple memory. Almost nothing to it at all. But that, Dave said... That's the last clear image of Damien he can recall before he went home that night. The next morning, Damien's friend Danica said she picked him up and maybe a couple others for a high ride. And I sat down with Danica for this podcast a week or so before Dana. And here's how Danica described that morning to give a little more detail to the picture of Damien that's developing. Really, that's that's all like um, the I just remembered we went for a high ride. It was it was me, him and like maybe like two other people. I can't remember who it would have been. It would have been like maybe his brother or it could have been um get the sense that they were like hanging out from the night before and just picking them up in the morning. Yeah. Of course there was supposed to be a party Memorial Day that weekend. Right. It was always a party every Memorial Day weekend. And it was like not one spot on Brown Run. It was all of Brown Run. Everybody, like, they, different cliques would have like different areas and like it would be all up and down. So, like, who knows what party you would end up at? You could walk up and down and just go to a different part. Now, is it on Brown Run itself or is it on 160? All of no, it. All of it. Okay. So, all like, all up in there. Yep. All up in those woods. All of it. Yeah. All of it. It was like all along Brown Run, like, on Brown Up to the upper reservoir. Then, yep. There. Up 160. And then um, there's 160D that goes down mm-hmm. and back out to 204, I think, that goes then to Brown Run. Yep. It's like a loop kind of thing. Yep. And I think that one goes to Ludlow, too. Or yeah. Close to Ludlow. Or 259, I think, goes to Ludlow, which is right behind 160D. Yep. Uh, and then, um, yeah, it was like all sorts of different places up in there. There was all sorts of different like areas people would camp. We could like go to all sorts of different parts. Who gravitated to where up there? It, 
Yeah. Never knew. They, they just found know? their spot when they got yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, like, there could have been, like, a group of us that went up. I didn't go to that one this, that year because I ended up having to, like, work or something. I, uh, like, like, it's, we would all go as, like, a group. Like, say, like, I knew somebody at one party. Yeah. And the other people didn't like it. They would just leave me there and go to a different party. I'd be like, all right, I'll catch up with you later. Like, that kind of thing. But you never knew who you were going to see at any kind of party, so. Was it, did you ever witness any altercations or was there ever like problems like that? Or people just minded their business and stayed with their people? No, I mean, there were altercations and people didn't like people. Or that was, you know, some dude hit on some dude's girlfriend or, you know, dumb shit like that. But it, it wasn't like anything. Out. Yeah, it was in danger out there, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Not like that. No. No, no, no. Do you feel like he went to the woods that night or do you feel like something happened in town? Like just your personal. Either way, Danica said she dropped Damien back at home after that ride and all seemed well. Tell me what he was like that morning when he picked him up. Happy. He was happy. Yeah. Excited well, he about was excited because the, you know, they were going to a party. Everybody was you know, thrilled about going to that party. That and um, I'm sure Gibstock, but I mean, he didn't go to Gibstock, I don't think. I don't think it was that year, though. I think it was a different year. I think it may have been after that. But... Um, he was pretty happy. I mean, of course, we were driving around doing stuff we weren't supposed to because we were kids. You know, we would have been, what, 21? Um, like, the fresh newbie drinkers the day after a huge hangover, let's pick people up and go for a high ride. Go smoke a bunch of weed in the woods, come back, and whatever, we split ways, and... Mm-hmm. And that's what it was. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. That's, I never... Never saw him. I remember, I remember waving to him saying, see you later, you know, and he was walking up his hill and going to his house. That's it. That's all it's good. That's all it is. Yeah. It occurs to me now as I sit pulling pieces here and pieces there from each person's interview these past few weeks, that a collection of essays just about the last clear memory Damien's friends and family have of him could be written. And if you knew Damien, we invite you to reach out and leave us a message that will air in an upcoming episode. Tell us your last clear memory of Damien Sharp in your own words. Visit the link to our anchor page in the show notes where you can leave that story in our mailbox right from your phone. Easy as voicemail, but way less annoying. Anyhow, what Damien did leading up to that Saturday evening, May 25th, is a weird story. First, Stephen told us Damien stopped at Master Skater to discuss their plans for the evening. Earlier in the week, before Damien hurt his knee, Stephen said the crew, Damien, Dave, Steve, and a handful of other regular friends, planned to camp at a spot picked out by Steve's friend, Castaway John. We reached out numerous times to Castaway to see if he'd tell us his memories of Damien. So far, no response. Stephen said the plan had been to drag a keg out into the spot of Castaways and party. Woods parties, if you're not familiar, have a traditional template. Basically. Someone procures a keg of beer and hopefully remembers to also grab something to tap it with, and someone secures the use of either a farmer's fallow pasture or a section of forest, and folks are invited. This is not glamping. This is a canvas pup tent slung between a couple of oak trees situation. Fire ring made of scavenged rocks, firewood literally everywhere around you for mile upon unpopulated mile, tarps hanging from trees if rain was coming or being hastily tied to trees if it showed up unannounced, because trying to stay dry was part of the adventure after all. But, Stephen said, the knee was a problem. 
The spot they'd chosen was around a one-mile hike off the roadside, and Damien was struggling enough with curbs and steps. It wasn't impossible for him to get around, according to Stephen, especially if he was motivated. But the rain had made mud, and the mud was the ultimate problem. They decided instead to just basically repeat the Friday night party at Damien's place again. That's why Damien came to the skate park that afternoon. Being 20 years old, Stephen was too young to purchase alcohol, so he was giving Damien a few bucks for a bottle, maybe a cut of an ounce of weed. Party favors. Then, Stephen said, a friend drove Damien to another friend's house where, according to statements provided to police at the time, one of Damien's friends gave him $900. People told police back then, and this person verified to us directly last fall, that he gave Damien that money so he could pick up a pound of weed for him while Damien was picking up those party favors. It gets sticky here because we're at the edge of a rabbit hole. Two roads diverge, as they say. There are two belief systems when it comes to how Damien made his money in Warren after coming home from the army. Dana says Damien was living on unemployment, and when he got paid, he spent it up quick and wound up scrounging by Wednesday or Thursday of week two before the next check hit his account. Others say Damien was selling, and he wasn't just selling pot, some of them say. We're going to break this entire topic of conversation wide open for you in a later episode, so we're not going to get too deep into speculation on Damien's DoorDash of marijuana CV, or lack thereof, here. Just know, Damien was running errands that afternoon looking for something to liven up whatever party he intended to head out to that night. Which party that was, it turns out, is yet another fork in the speculative last road Damien took that weekend. After Water Street, Damien was driven to the corner of Dahl and Prospect Streets, where he presumably crutched it up to a large apartment building, 332 Prospect, the mansions. There, in apartment 12, Damien would have his last known face-to-face interaction with another human being that anyone knew of until earlier this year. And at that point, everyone agrees, Damien hung out for about an hour. What precisely went on inside that apartment, according to its occupant, will be the focus of an upcoming episode, but know that everyone agrees that around 6 p.m., as this person told us, the two parted ways outside the apartment building with plans to meet up later that night for a party. And then, in the words of the investigator who took over Damien's case in 2003, it's like the world just opened up and swallowed him. It would be another week, not until June 3rd, that Dana and Janine would show up at the City of Warren Police Department at 11.30 p.m. to report Damien missing for the first official time. But that's because, Dana says, it wasn't until around Saturday, June 1st, a full week after anyone stopped seeing Damien around, that anyone called the family to let them know. What was it like going into the apartment after because it was a few days you know it was about a week and then it was about a week that Stacy uh, someone had reached out to Stacy his stepmother and asked hey have you seen Damien he hasn't been around and this was very, you know his closest friend so she stopped at my house I was out front working she lived up the road for me and said hey you know and his dad Skip was out of town um, or busy or something, and she said, would you mind running down with me? And I said, no, no problem, you know. So we went down, and um, obvious nobody there, um, but there was, like, dishes in the sink, you know, and they're getting kind of slimy, you know. It, it, you know, it was obvious nobody had been in the house for a little while. For some time. Yeah. Okay. But did he still have his car, but it just wasn't running, or...? 
I don't know where his car was. He didn't have it. It blew up. And I think it was might have been at his dad's or something. I mean, he didn't have it down where he was living. That's why my mom was taking him to put in applications. He had put one in at Worley and stuff like that. But that's one of the reasons he got the apartment, you know, where he did. I think it's Cedar Street. Was the Y was right there because the Y was such a big part. Yeah, he was know, there every day almost. That Thursday, I know, was the last time that he checked in. Um, yeah, and when this went in front of Art Zerby, because at the time he's the one that had to uh, sign the missing person's paperwork and stuff or be part of it or whatever. It had to go in front of him. He had told me as soon as he heard about this, you know, because he'd see Damien at the Y, you know, he, he um, went down and looked to see and went through the books one Damien. And he, he said, I was sure I had seen him since then. He said, but no, he hadn't been in since then. So I asked Dana to describe the actual first experience when they got to the police station that night. The issue of did the police do enough or even just did the police take an interest from the beginning is another one of those rabbit holes. You can find any answer you like depending on who you ask. Some people say, yeah, and others say they did nothing. The truth, probably, as with most things, lies somewhere in the middle of those two extremes, and even Dana herself offered a caveat or two as she talked through the issue of the family's rapport with the department and vice versa over the years. What was your feeling like when you guys got there? Did you feel like oh. Well, no, because, you know, it's like we feel we need to do something because when we got to his house, that there was notes there. There was a few notes and it said, you know, just I don't even remember word for word, but something like, hey, dude, um, hope everything's OK, but, you know, you better make this right. Mm -hmm. So just different things like that. A couple of people were trying to reach him. And when we got in the apartment phone rang. I answered the phone. Someone asked for Damien. I said, no, he's not here. I said, may I ask who's calling? No, it's just a friend looking for him. And I said, well, I told him who I was and said, actually, we're looking for him. Nobody's, you know, heard from him. Um, and he wouldn't give me his name, but he said, you might want to check the jail. I don't know if he suggested hospital too or not, but he said, you might want to check the jail. And uh, I said, okay, but I did give this this person my number and asked him if he would call me if he hears anything or anything like that and I did talk to him again I believe his name was Elber um, and he just said nobody had heard anything or nothing like that you know everybody everybody's wondering where he was from what I remember you know and that's kind of what was going around Danica said the same thing and I know um, somebody who hung out with was saying you know it kind of chatter was like where is he but nobody wanted to talk about it you know and it's still to this day it's it's kind of impossible to find out who he was riding with that night or, you know, yeah. who he was with. Well, that wasn't the night. The first time we went into the house and he wasn't there was not the night that we went to okay. the police. Okay. Stacy went home and told his dad, Skip, um, and Skip says he's 22. He's an adult. He's fine. Quit being girls. And um, so then I think it went, it was after that anyways, I contacted a state trooper that I knew just personally and said, hey, you know, this is kind of going on. Um, can I file a missing persons conference? Because Skip wasn't interested in, you know, he for no, he had no reason to think something was, you know, up. Um, I just thought we were overreacting. 
because uh, at the time I was not talking to Janine, Damien's, you know, mom, we, sisters, we fought all the time, you know, and um, so he told me, no, I can't do anything. It, it has to be a parent. So I reached out to Janine, and it might, may, I can't remember the day, maybe it was Monday or something like that, or the following weekend, I can't remember, but it was within days there. I reached out to Janine and said, hey, have you heard from Damien? And she said, no, why? What's up? I have been trying to reach him. What's going on? And I told her what happened with Stacy and I, you know, that we, uh, her and Stacy, of course, didn't get along, you know, the ex and the new wife. Um, so, and I told her, I can't file missing persons. We've been in the apartment, everything like that, and what we found. So, uh, Janine didn't drive. She didn't like driving or whatever. So uh, I had to go pick her up. She lived in Celeron, get her back here. We got to the police department. It was late. I'm not sure at the time, 9, 11, somewhere in there. And uh, the doors were closed. And so, you know, somewhere around the back. So we went around to the back. I don't know if we beeped, buzz, knock, whatever. And, you know, they said, you know, okay, I just want to talk about a missing person. And, well, you know, they just didn't seem interested at all, you know. Well, they probably seemed, it's 11 o'clock at night. Someone didn't come home, you know. How old is he, 22? Okay, whatever. And then um, finally we said, well, we think maybe drugs were involved, you know, because we've seen those notes at the house, you know. Oh, okay, then they would talk a little bit. But it ended up being, we thought we filed a missing persons. And we didn't. <laughs> Apparently it wasn't until like two weeks later that they had us go in front of Zerby. Um, and that to find out that this was the official one, which we thought we had filed, but I don't know how to, you know, I thought yeah. just telling him was filing it. Um, but, well, we went to the house that night. Okay. We took them to Damien's apartment and stuff. Um, at first, I can tell you things were not good with the police department. I just didn't feel they were listening to us. At first, it was taken a little bit serious, mm -hmm. but then they weren't doing anything, which I'm going to say now Twenty years later, sure. okay, and now that I have a son in law enforcement <laughs> and a little bit older and know the way of life a little bit more, of course they're not going to tell us everything. Um, and at one point, though, they would tell Janine something and say, don't tell them. And then, you know, or Janine could tell me but wouldn't tell this, you know, so it just really got it. We're going to look more at that relationship between the police and Damien's family in the next two episodes, when we take a closer look at this case from the law enforcement and media angles. For now, though, I want to draw your attention to the way perception may or may not have played a part in this case. I asked Dana for her opinion on that. Nobody knew how to take Damien. You do you know, think that perception played a part? I do believe that perception played a part. You know, even though, like I said, I believe Damien had the respect of um, Art Zerby, mm -hmm. because Art seen him as a person, seen him down there at the Y, working out, hey, how you doing, you know, locker room chatter type of thing. Yeah. But these guys just, you know, they had a perception. They seen, you know, oh, when I heard the line, somebody can be missing if they want to. It's not illegal to be missing if you want to. But, you know, they knew he hadn't touched his account. And he had money in there. And that was, you know, that was the big thing was, uh, I know it sounds stupid, but waiting for his next unemployment check. And when that came in 
and it wasn't touched. He didn't go draw money out from a Northwest anywhere. And to me, I knew it was gone then. Mm-hmm. You know, and as I was saying, a lot of people, you know, say, oh, well, I think he was dealing drugs, dealing drugs to kids and stuff like that. Damien was living on his unemployment check because he was in the military. Damien did three years in the military. You know, he was deployed. He was a veteran and he didn't get that respect. He had a short haircut and didn't have his nails painted. He would have had that respect. But because he dyed his hair black or, you know, he didn't have it. He, you know, um, but he was living on that. And like I, you know, I'd say, you know, Recall that Art Zerby is the district magistrate who was responsible for signing Damien's declaration, making him an official missing person. I reached out to Art this past spring, hoping that he'd be able to recount these memories to you himself. He told me he couldn't really remember much from the case at all and wasn't interested in participating in the podcast, which is fine, but it's unfortunate. As Brian said in a recent interview with Aaron Mee of Lily Broadcasting, everyone's perception of Damien influences how they responded to the fact that he was missing, and perception played a role in how the case played out. It would be nice to be able to collect Art Zerbys. In the next episode, we're going to hear from the original investigator in this case, Tony Comenti. Brian and I reached out to the Cityborne Police Department in August of last year to let them know what we were planning to do and to introduce the project and ourselves to them. Brian and I have both worked as reporters in Warren, with the current group of officers and administrators at Warren PD, but we wanted to establish an open line of communication directly tied to Damien, one we'd initiated to let them know that we weren't planning to just drop a big bomb in the county. We were able to sit down for a one-on-one interview with Tony on his last day of work. He retired on January 9th of this year, so Tony, I'm sorry I made myself a feature of your last day, but thank you for sitting down with us. We're going to hear from Tony first, And after he speaks, you're going to hear the voice of Joe Spraveri, who is the current chief of police for the City of Warren Police Department. He's going to weigh in on what he learned about Damien over his 16 years in law enforcement. Chief Spraveri was in high school when Damien went missing, but his work in the Warren County Drug Task Force has brought him Damien's way more than once, he said. Whatever it is, what it is, I was still a junior officer and still new. Yeah, for whatever reason. They gotta do what they gotta do. They gotta do what they do. You know, (laughs) it is what it is. You know, I'm still, I was still, you know, making my way through starting here. So, I mean, they they have to do what they have to do. What did you learn about Damien over the course of the investigation just as a person? What did you learn about what kind of person he was? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, I learned. Mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot of different things. A lot of different things about him. He he was different. He was definitely a loner. He was definitely someone that could. Just, just do his own thing. Uh, I mean, people did like him. Some people didn't. Um, he was, he was somebody that just, uh, just existed on his own little plane. The the biggest the biggest thing that I took away um, from just the folklore of all this and the perception of people that you know that actually went to school with him or, or interacted with him out in public. He was, he was the dark type gothic figure um, but at the same time um, all of the, the females that he was friends with they always felt safe with him you know even if they were out partying that they knew that if they were with him that you know they were in good hands and, and the, the people that he went to school with they you know they would speak on Damien 
regarding him sticking up for others. If somebody was getting bullied, um, Damien would be one of the first ones to stick up for him. And obviously, you know, he was into the drug scene, and and that's not good, but he had a lot of good characteristics about him. Somebody had said to me, just as I was talking to different people, you know, Damien didn't deserve whatever might have happened to him, but Warren is safer without him. Like, how does that guy, how does that hit you guys? Does that mm. feel like... And there's I, a lot worse person people than him, I'm telling you that. That's... So it depends on, on your outlook on certain things. Yeah, if, I wouldn't say that. If if you've been personally impacted mm-hmm. by drugs or, or any other type of substance abuse and somebody may have contributed to that, then I would see where they would derive that opinion. I, I don't know if I would say that. People make their own destinies, and, and he he could have been... Who knows if he'd still be around. So we have a ton of ground to cover in the next episode. It's going to cover the initial investigation and the law enforcement perspective on this case in great detail. Before we get to that, I want to give you this little clip from that episode as well, just because I don't have a ton of space to throw it in in the next episode. It's just going to be chock full. So check out Tony and Joe's history with the City of Warren Police Department right here. So if you guys could just start out by giving me both a little bit of background on um, your history as police officers with this department and with the case. I started in January of 2002. Uh, came from Erie. Um, I worked in Erie for mm, about three and a half years at another department. Uh, prior to that, I was with a jail. And prior to that, I worked um, a lot of other jobs I was with the Department of Transportation. Um, I came into this uh, law enforcement uh, field uh, older. Um, I wasn't a young man like most people. Um, I was I was in my 30s when I started as a police officer. Um, moved to Warren, uh, started my career here. Um, when this case came about, um, so this was in June of 2002, um, I was still considered new here at the police department. Um, I believe I was off of coach, which means that I was on my own, but still uh, on, I guess, probation. I would still be considered a rookie. Right. Um, I still had people that I would work with as far as supervising me, um, watching what I would do. I. I uh, I had a, a person that would be overseeing me uh, on what I was doing. Uh, took this case. Um, I believe I took this call with Jim Jordan. Um, he was the OIC at the time. And I got the call, and I think it was from Janine. I think it was the mother that... Uh, I think the original call came in, and it was that night. So I'm, I'm a little different. Uh, I grew up, I was born and raised in Cory, Pennsylvania, and I graduated high school in 2002. So when all this kicked off, I was, you know, a senior in high school. Um, and I don't recall ever hearing anything about it or seeing any, any newspapers or on the news. Um, after high school, I went to Edinburgh University. I graduated from Edinburgh uh, in 2006. 
in the summer of 2006 actually and my internship at the end of that summer overlapped with me enrolling in the police academy up at Mercyhurst six-month academy I graduated the academy on December 15th 2006 and I actually moved here Christmas night yeah. to start my job with the police station okay the police department so this has been my first and only police department that I've worked for um, I came here when I was 23 you know pretty wet behind the ears <laughs> didn't didn't know much about anything really um, and just worn just came to be home yeah um, I like outdoorsy stuff hunting fishing kayaking and if, if you're into that sort of thing that and there's no better place to be. As, as, fun as, as fun as it would be to, you know, work in a big city, you know, where you're just constantly call to call to call, um, I could never live in one. That's just not my, it's not my style. So, so I've been here ever since. I just started year 16, actually, a couple weeks ago. Um, I was, I worked patrol first and I was promoted to patrol sergeant in 2012. And then seven years later, I promoted to uh, the captain position, which is, uh, it's more administrative. And then in 2021, uh, Brandon Deppin was a chief of police and he retired. And I was offered the, my current position, which I accepted. And uh, I've had I've had minimal involvement with the Damien Sharp case. Uh, for the most part, when I started, you know, they were already four years into it. Right. So I, I came in my first day on the job and everybody else said, you know, it, all the assignments had already been made. Um, throughout my early career though, I became a uh, part of the Warren County Drug Task Force. And a lot of the information that came in about the Damien Sharp case came in through task force investigations. So that's pretty much been the only role that I've, I've essentially played in it is you know, hearing things from the drug aspect, you know, from that world and passing it on to the investigators. Smoke is a production of Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local. Created, written, and told by Stacy Gross. Executive producers are Stacy Gross and Brian Hagberg. Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by Bob Gross. Voice acting by Frank Williams and Adam McCoy. Audio production, transcription, and cover art by Stacey Gross. Our guests in this episode were Dana Kibbe, Danica Steck, Tony Cimenti, and Joe Spraveri. Thanks in this episode to Dana and Thomas Kibbe and Stephen Sharp Jr. for their help in providing access to family-specific information. Also to Alan Paquette for her outstanding feedback as I drafted, edited, and curated these episodes over the course of several tense months. Check out the show notes for links to our website, sources we used, and a full transcript of each episode. Visit us on social media at Let's Find Damien. If you like the show, tell everyone. Remember to follow the show wherever you're listening. Rate and review. It helps us out a ton.